You're listening to the Chronicles of Aguda, the Arsenal podcast. I'm Martin Tyler, and you're listening to Harry Simeon. Hello and welcome back to another live edition of the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by the 90 Min Football Network. As ever, I'm your host, Harry Simu, and on this edition, going to be bringing you my tactical analysis of Liverpool for Arsenal nil. Called the game on the post-match reaction show in a lot of ways, men against boys. And I still think that is true. I've had the opportunity to watch the game back uh, with a calmer head, without all of the emotion and without the kind of, uh, you know, raw feelings that come about during a game. And I've made some observations about the way that Arsenal set out to beat Liverpool tactically or set out to get a result at Anfield. I've made some notes on some of the differences between the way, for example, Liverpool press and the way that Arsenal tried to press. I think there were a lot of tactical things and, and nuances that we saw in yesterday's game uh, that explain not solely, but partly why we lost the game. So on this edition of the podcast, I'd like to bring you that analysis and feel free to comment, feel free to disagree, feel free to agree, feel free to ask any questions you like in the chat box. They're always welcome, as you guys know. Big good evening to those of you that are with us live on this Sunday night. It is bloody freezing here in London. Um, really cold tonight. Uh, so winter is just around the corner, it seems. We've actually got away with it up until now. It's been cold on the odd day, but generally it's been quite mild and I really felt it today. I, I put my jacket on to go for a walk around the corner earlier, uh, just down to the local shop and I really underestimated how cold it was. So uh, just a warning for those of you who are watching live and are going to be getting up at the crack of dawn tomorrow to head out for work. Make sure you're wrapped up. Um, big hello to everybody who'll be watching this back on the replay. And of course, to those of you who will be listening via the audio platforms. Uh, hope you are all well. Let's say a few hellos before we dive into it. Big hello to Chris Mossing in the chat, to Dave, to Jashar, to Freddie, to Bad Boy, to Ryan, to Edward, um, to Delisu, who says, how painful was it to re-watch it, Harry? Um, it wasn't as painful as the first time around, because when you know what's coming, you don't get that, for example, sinking feeling when you concede a goal. Like when Arsenal conceded the first goal on Saturday evening, I felt sick to the stomach because I felt we did really well up until that point. And it just came as, as I think I described it yesterday, as a, basically a kick in the bollocks. And this is, um, you know, this is the kind of feeling that doesn't get replicated when you watch it again because you know what's coming. Um, so that state of shock is not there, I guess. Um but yeah, it, it wasn't great viewing, let's be honest. Um, I've had a really good day today, though, um, and I'm feeling a lot more positive about kind of what we saw. No, not about what we saw yesterday, but about where Arsenal are at in in general. Um, I'm a lot calmer today. I realised that, you know, yesterday I, I was quite wound up. I was quite fired up after the game because with every defeat seems to come this barrage of people wanting to, to knock the team, wanting to knock the club. And I've got no issue, as I've said to many of you in, um, in in replies on the comment section, I've got no issue with people being critical. I've got no issue with people having concerns about the state of Arsenal, about where this team are going, about the manager even, about the ownership, whatever it might be. I just think there is a way to express those views. And I think there is a, a large section of this fan base who are so desperate to be write about Mikel Arteta and their initial assessments of Mikel Arteta and this uh, current project, that they're almost waiting for Arsenal to slip up so that they can say, I told you so. And so that they can say, look, it's a bloody shambles. I've seen a title on a YouTube video um, earlier today. Shambles again. We hadn't lost in nine games. What do you mean again? You know, we hadn't lost a game in the Premier League since the end of August. This is not a weekly occurrence. Not at the moment anyway. And that's the kind of overreaction stuff that 
drives me mad and irritates me. And, and it's probably why I lost it a little bit on the podcast yesterday, because it just comes in waves and the waves of negativity are just not justified solely based on what we saw yesterday at Anfield. And ultimately, that was what we were talking about, right? Arsenal's performance at Anfield and how it affects the bigger picture. But without further ado, let's get into... Um, Let's get into some of the tactical analysis and we'll start off uh, by sharing the famous old tactics board. You guys know I love to pull this out uh, when we've got tactical stuff to discuss. And just looking at the way the two teams lined up, um, we know that Liverpool obviously play with a 4-3-3 formation and it is a 4-3-3 with Liverpool. Um, you know, I know we see a lot of variations of that at different clubs and um, you know, we talk a lot about four, two, three, ones. This is very much a four, three, three with Liverpool. It was Timikas at left back in place of Andrew Robertson, who obviously sustained an injury while on international duty. But from what I was told in the lead up to the game, Timikas has been very, very good. And I don't think many Liverpool fans were concerned about the prospect of him playing there. Van Dijk and Matip in the heart of the defence, Alexander Arnold on the right. Oxlade Chamberlain started in midfield alongside Fabinho and Thiago because of Jordan Henderson's fitness issues. Uh, and then, of course, the front three was Mane, Jota and Salah, uh, which we know can be incredibly devastating. From an Arsenal perspective, it was Ramsdale in goal. White and Gabriel um, were the two centre-halves. Tommy Asu at right back. Nuno Tavares was selected ahead of Kieran Tierney, despite the Scottish international returning to fitness. And in midfield, it was Partey and Lokonga. Lacazette played in that role just in behind Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, with Saka operating from the right and Emile Smith-Rowe playing from the left-hand side. So lots been made of, of how Arsenal did quite well, I thought. Uh, or, you know, in a lot of a lot of people thought to silence the Anfield crowd, to really keep things at, a, you know, a safe level and to keep Liverpool at a safe distance um, in that first, I think it was 39 minutes before we conceded a goal. And look, rightly so, you know, in years gone by, we've gone to Anfield and the game's been done and dusted by that point. Now, I'm still not saying that this is acceptable. I'm still not saying that we should be, or I'm definitely not saying that we should be massively positive about the fact that we kept Liverpool quiet for 40 minutes because other teams have done that. Worser teams, lesser teams uh, have done that. But it might not be enough progress, but it is some form of progress, right? I've seen a lot of people, um, you know, telling me that Mikel Arteta was at fault for almost instigating the Anfield crowd into action. And then that went on to cost us at the end of the first half. Look, Mikel Arteta showed passion, showed fight, showed a willingness and a desire to defend his players. And I think he was absolutely right. And when you watch that incident back, Mikel Arteta uh, was spot on about Sadio Mane and the way he went into that challenge. Any manager worth his penny, is that, no, what's the saying? Worth his money or worth his, you know, profession. I don't know what the saying is. Correct me. I've completely lost it on that. But any manager uh, with any sort of quality or any sort of ambition and desire to win appeals for that, appeals for a free kick to be given in Arsenal's direction. Jurgen Klopp comes over like an absolute, I don't even want to use the word on this show, it's PG, but he comes over and he makes a massive issue about it. Now, Jurgen Klopp kind of revealed. I think in the post-match interview, one of the post-match interviews, I think it was the one he gave to Sky, that he was frustrated because he'd seen Atletico Madrid trying to get Sadio Mane sent off in a recent fixture, etc., etc. That's got nothing to do with us. And I don't think as a manager, you should take issue with another manager appealing for a decision. What I would say is it was an incident that happens in football and it was an incident that meant nothing afterwards. It was done. It was dusted. Arteta showed a lot of class, I thought, post-match by just saying, look, I was defending my team. He was defending his. He didn't take the opportunity to throw mud at Jurgen Klopp. However, Jurgen Klopp did. You know, he started going on about how the decision was a, was clearly, uh, or how the incident was clearly innocuous and that there was nothing to it. And it just felt like, you know, he hadn't gotten over that. And the fact that Jurgen Klopp reacted like that to Mikel Arteta's appeals for a free kick to me, tells me that he was rattled, that he was frustrated up until that point in the game. And that is the biggest telltale sign. That plus the atmosphere, how flat it was up until that period, tells you that Arsenal went to Anfield and at least for that period of time, made it difficult for Liverpool and concerned them. 
The problem is that when you concede a sloppy goal the way we did, um, you know, just before the break, you then give yourselves a mountain to climb. And actually, you know, people say, oh, the crowd got up and they went crazy and they really pushed and spurred the team on after that incident. Actually, the crowd, when you watch the game back, I think, and maybe it's not as apparent when you watch it the first time around, but when you watch the game back, you'll find that actually Liverpool started to turn the screw a little bit in terms of their performance. They forced a couple of saves out of Aaron Ramsdale and that is what lifted the crowd rather than, you know, Jurgen Klopp and Arteta. Sure, did it raise a few decibels at the time? Yeah, but it's Anfield and there are going to be periods in the game where you're going to have to deal with that. Therefore, if you want to go to Anfield and come away with anything, you have to be able to handle that. Simple as that. But moving on, you know, Arsenal conceded that stupid goal. I talked about it in the post-match reaction. The way that Sadio Mane is able to wriggle free and take up that position in, in between, I think it was Tommy Asu and, and Gabriel was really, really frustrating. The delivery pinpoint from Trent Alexander-Arnold as we've come uh, to expect. But, you know, what was concerning about that particular incident, and if you watch it back again, you'll see, is that it looks like Liverpool have an overload at the far post before the free kick's even been taken. And I remember at the time when I was watching the game, saying to my dad, who I was watching the game with, I've got to watch Van Dyke at the far post. And in the end, Van Dyke didn't score. But just having that presence there meant that Arsenal kind of switched off, were worried about the presence of a big, tall, physical central defender and probably didn't pay enough attention to what Sadio Mane was doing and the run he was making. So it was really, really frustrating to see us concede in that nature. But I think there were tactical things that Arsenal got wrong that contributed to Liverpool being so dominant. Look, we know they're a better side. And everything I'm saying now is with the caveat of they have better players than us. But I think there were some things that we did that didn't necessarily help ourselves. And um, I'm going to start off by talking about the way Arsenal... Uh, whoops. Apologies for that. Uh, I'm going to start off by talking about the way... Arsenal were trying to play out from the back because look I like the idea of playing out from the back I understand the theory behind it I get why we do it um I really really do but I think at times we invite pressure and and often you know that can be a good thing and often you're you know inviting the team on so that then you can try and play your way through the lines and create those advantages in other areas of the pitch. But the problem is that if you don't manage to play the ball through the lines and if you don't manage to take advantage of those situations, you are solely bringing pressure upon yourselves without reaping the rewards and the benefits that come with playing that way. So Arsenal would very often, you know, the two centre-halves, White, Gabriel, would drop into those familiar positions either side of Aaron Ramsdale, Tavares and Tommy Asu would take up slightly further positions. And you'd see Sadio Mane, Diogo Jota and Mo Salah press right up the pitch. You'd see that followed up by Thiago and Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain. And Fabinho would just sit as a bit of a safety insurance policy, if you like, just between those two guys. Liverpool will push their team up as far up the pitch as they possibly could and they try and squeeze you in. That's what Liverpool do and that's what Liverpool have always done to very, very good effect under uh, Jurgen, Klopp's, um, Jurgen Klopp's management. Now, as I say, it's all good. Aaron Ramsdale or, you know, whoever it is in between the sticks playing that short ball to Gabriel and to Ben White. But the difference between the way that we press and the way that Liverpool press is huge. OK, Liverpool press with three forwards, not one striker and two wingers. They press with three forwards whose sole intention is to press the width of the penalty area. They want to stop you progressing the ball out. They don't mind you playing the ball out to the right back if the right back, for example, has to drop deeper to receive it or if the left back has to drop deeper. And we saw that happen a couple of times where Tavares had to come right back and then Ramsdale would play the pass into him rather than Gabriel because that option seemed that it had been shut off. Liverpool are not interested in pressing those wide areas. They're quite happy for you to have it there. Liverpool are only interested in pressing in this area here, and that's across the width of the penalty area. Now, that's not a large area of distance to cover with three players. 
Okay, with three players, that's a fairly modest distance that you're asking those players to cover. And so they're quite effective. In fact, very effective at preventing you playing balls in between those lines and getting the ball into your midfield of Partey and Lekonga. But what they also do incredibly well is they back up the press with Thiago, with Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain. And what happened quite often was when Arsenal did try and break the lines, they weren't able to get the ball into Thomas Partey. They weren't able to get the ball into um, Albert Sambi Lekonga. They were only able to get the ball in towards the area that Alexander Lacazette was occupying. Now, Liverpool did a very, very good job of saying, of Fabinho essentially saying to Matip and Van Dijk, I trust you in a one-on-one situation. You take charge of Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. I'm going to go with Alexander Lacazette. And he committed a couple of fouls, Fabinho, in preventing Alexander Lacazette, flicking the ball on, helping the ball on, bringing the ball under control. But Fabinho was incredibly effective at making that ball to Alexander Lacazette essentially a dead one. Now, uh, there were a few occasions watching the game back where Lacazette managed to help the ball on to Bukayo Saka in particular, uh, where he won a couple of free kicks. But for the most part, he didn't get any change out of Fabinho whatsoever. None at all. And that is, you know, you can talk about tactics and you can talk about systems and shapes. That is as simple as one player being much better than the other. That is as simple as Liverpool having a superior quality throughout their team and therefore being able to win individual battles. That was a big, big issue for Arsenal. Breaking the lines was not happening. And and you can't invite a team like Liverpool onto you and invite them to press you if you don't have an outball, if you don't have an outplan. Now, there were occasions where this didn't work and Amron Ramsdale at times opted to go that bit longer. Sometimes we went straight to Aubameyang. And more often than not, Aubameyang would flick the ball on, but who's going to chase it? You're the furthest man forward. And this was frustrating me a little bit about Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. And listen, I've defended him a lot recently. I think he's been good in the sense of his work rate. I think he's worked a lot harder than he has done in previous years. I think he's shown an interest in in what is happening at Arsenal, the project that is currently um, underway at the club. But As a centre-forward, I think you've got to show more in-game intelligence than what Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang showed yesterday. You know, flicking balls on to nobody. You you know, you know that there's no one beyond you. Who are you flicking it on to? And he did that, having watched the game back at least two or three times in the first period. And it was really, really frustrating. I want to see a centre-forward hold the ball up. I want to see a centre-forward have the ability to bring the ball down himself. And if not, beat the defenders and go towards goal alone, at least buy your team the time to squeeze out and push out. Now, the problem with going long when you want to play like this, okay, is that you can do it. But if you decide that you're going to go for argument's sake, um, directly from Ramsdale into Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, if your two centre-halves have dropped right back alongside your goalkeeper, so have your full-backs, then all of a sudden, These players, when that ball goes long, they need to get out quickly. They need to get out incredibly quickly because if they don't and Liverpool win win the ball back, which they can quite easily do from a long ball, it's a 50-50 situation, then the turnover happens and you're in a position where you're playing three forwards on side because Liverpool are brave enough and Liverpool have the balls essentially to say, no, you know, our, our forwards are forwards. They're not a striker and two wingers like we play with. You know, it's it's three strikers. It's three forwards. That is the nature of the positioning that they take up. And if you do go long, and most of the time, you're not going to have a centre forward that's going to compete with Virgil van Dijk or even Joel Matip in the air. When that ball comes directly back, they are in a position to hurt you immediately. There is no build-up. There is no transition. They're already in those positions. And that's what Liverpool do that Arsenal simply don't at this moment in time. They 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 not they don't just press you, but they also counter-press you from deeper areas. And when they win the ball back and they win turnovers quickly, more often than not, they're not winning the ball back at centre-back. They're winning the ball back much further up the pitch. And as you saw for 
um, the second goal and the goals and a couple of chances, or just before the second goal, there was a chance, wasn't there, that fell to Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain. And that one, uh, again, came from Arsenal trying to play out from the back, trying to break the lines, not really knowing what it was they were supposed to be doing, creating a mix-up. And this is the area right here, just in front of your penalty area, where Liverpool are at their devastating best. Because Mane, because Jota, because Salah, because Oxlade-Chamberlain and Thiago are all in that vicinity. Now, if you can beat that press, great. But you have to be good enough to do it. And this Arsenal side at this moment in time are not good enough to do it. We kept losing the ball in those areas. It was, you know, people like Lekonga, who I, I really like, I think took too many touches at times, didn't really look assured in possession. Thomas Partey was hugely not at the races. That was probably as bad as I've seen Thomas Partey play in an Arsenal shirt. He was really, really poor, really, really average, I felt. And, um, and you know, again, we can talk about all the tactical things, but if you just can't match up man-to-man -man physically in, in terms of intensity, then you're going to suffer. And I think that what you saw was the difference between the two pressing styles. Arsenal's pressing style that we've talked about quite a lot in recent times can be quite passive. Um, it's perhaps more about showing players into certain lanes and certain areas of the pitch than it is winning the ball back straight away. Whereas Liverpool, they win the ball back almost immediately, most of the time. It's about the speed with which they win it back. For us, it's a little bit different. It's about sending teams into certain lanes. So uh, what I mean by that is closing down the centre-back, for example, and cutting out the passing lane into the central midfielder, which then leads to him playing it out to the left or leads to him playing it out to the right. That It's more like, and I use this description, I think, and I got actually hammered for it, but I think it's quite a good description. You know, when you play pinball and you've got the arms and the levers in the pinball machine, right? And the, the ball goes and you can use the levers to kind of block the ball and send it in the directions that you want to send it. That's what Arsenal's press does, right? It, it's designed to make you or, or make people play in certain areas of the pitch where Arsenal feel that they're superior. Liverpool's press is 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 different. It's about winning the ball back as quickly. It's as though the game starts, you know, the opponent starts with the ball and you could imagine on the training ground, I don't know that they do this, but I could imagine Jurgen Klopp standing there with a um with a stopwatch and saying, "Bang. You know, this is how quickly can we win the ball?" That's what it's all about. Um from a Liverpool perspective and that is a very different philosophy to the one that we're seeing being uh, applied by Mikel Arteta. And I think, you know, we are, as a consequence, um, you know, we, we saw yesterday the, the big differences and people will say, well, Liverpool pressed this way and we pressed that way. And, you know, they did it a lot more effectively. They did do it more effectively, but ultimately the goal and the aim and the ambition of what they set out to do is, is slightly different to what we do. And, um, and that's, that's the problem. I think Ryan hits the nail on the head here. Um, Ryan Finity says, we have more of a city press than a Liverpool one, coordinated rather than aggressive. Ryan, that is a, a brilliant way of summing it up. I think that's fantastic. Um, hats off to you, mate. That's, that's perfectly put, much better than I could have ever put it. So uh, thank you so much. But I think you're spot on. It's a Manchester City press rather than a Liverpool press. People have referred to Jurgen Klopp's football as rock and roll football in the past. Pep Guardiola's side looked to strangle you, looked to kind of submit you or make you submit um, by kind of shutting off passing lanes. And they don't do it with the same intensity. It can be equally as effective in a different way slightly. But yeah, um, I think that's, that's a perfect way of putting it. I think... You know, the, the centre-forwards or, or Aubameyang and Lacazette, you know, I don't know if you can call them both centre-forwards based on the way they played yesterday in terms of the roles that they were asked to do. Uh, because I did think when we were out of possession that actually Alexander Lacazette had been told to sit on Fabinho and make sure that he was unable to dictate play from those deeper areas, try and get some change out of him. Um, but I just think, you know, we didn't break the lines enough to kind of summarise. We didn't, when we did try and break the lines we were finding the the only way was to go that little bit longer and going that little bit longer turns it into a percentage game. You know, long balls into certain areas become a bit of a gamble rather than a certainty, which, you know, when you're playing against strong physical players, 
like Liverpool's, you you know you, you're putting yourself at risk of losing it by doing that. I didn't think we broke the lines well enough. I didn't think that Lukonga and Partey were up to it in the middle of the park. I, I did say in the lead up to the game that maybe the right thing to do would have been to leave Alexander Lacazette out of the team and play an extra midfielder just to give us that level playing field in terms of numbers. I I said that I would have gone with the team that Mikel went with in the end, so I'm not going to go too hard on that. But, you know, I think in hindsight, and obviously as people who, you know, analyse the team and, and look back at the way we played, we have that benefit of hindsight, right? And I totally appreciate that. But maybe the extra midfielder would have done us a little bit of good yesterday because it's all good trying to sit back, soak up pressure. But at the same time, um, you know, if you don't have an outball and you don't have an outlet and you're playing against a team of Liverpool's quality, there's always going to come a point where you're going to switch off or they're going to find a way of breaking the deadlock. And then what happens is when you start a game in a really defensive mindset with the kind of sole aim and ambition of nullifying an opponent, when you do concede, it's very difficult to then flick the switch and be in a place where now you're ready to attack and you're ready to kind of um, go for people. So, yeah, uh, look, it's, um, uh, you know, these are lessons that we're going to learn. The one thing I would say is, yes, you know, we, we suffered from a massive individual error from Nuno Tavares, which essentially I thought put the game out of our reach. But you, you, what you've got to think about is, if this is the way that Mikel wants to play, if this is the way that, you know, he sees the future of, of, of Arsenal, then to a degree, you know, even if you are losing the game, you, you kind of have to stick with it and you kind of have to pers persist with it. You can't keep changing your approach and you can't keep changing, um, you know, your modus operandi or whatever you want to call it every single time that you concede a goal, you, you have to believe in what you're doing and you have to stick with it. And actually, when I think about it, you know, maybe we'd have conceded one goal less if we didn't stick to our way, but actually we've learned the lessons and actually it's shone the light on some of the problems with our way and fingers crossed that's something we're going to learn from and something we're going to improve on as a result. And as I said on the post-match reaction, I think you learn more from failure than you do from success. And I think that this is a big lesson, bit of a reality check, as I described it yesterday, for this young Arsenal team. But I think ultimately we were undone by a side who not only have superior quality, but have a more clear and defined style, have a style that's been implemented for the last five or six seasons. They have players who understand their roles and understand that style inside out, whereas we've still got, in my opinion, particularly in the forward areas now, players that you know are, are there because they were already at the club and we've not got around to replacing them yet we all understand Arsenal couldn't change the entire 11 in the summer I think the idea of um, keeping Oba the way we did and then allowing Lacazette to stay for another season was almost Arsenal's way of saying well look we know that we've got lots of work to do and we know that we need to improve that area eventually but given we've got Aubameyang and given we've got Lacazette there it's something that maybe isn't the number one priority. What you're starting to see now, though, is that disconnect between the new team and the new philosophy and the way that's been implemented at one end of the pitch and then us not being able to execute what complements that at the other end of the pitch because of, um, not because Ober and Lacquer are bad players, but because their skill set is not necessarily one that's a perfect fit or a good fit even for what it is that we're asking them to do. I mean, I saw a goal from uh, Vlavic yesterday for Fiorentina, which I, people will be gushing over in the next few days, I'm sure. But it was a long ball over the top, a ball played in behind, and he took a brilliant touch and then just fired it into the back of the net because he, he'd isolated the defender, but he also had the physicality and the, the, the directness and the drive to just get his head down and strike. And Aubameyang feels to me like we don't really get him on the shoulder of the last defender enough. Lacazette isn't ruthless in front of goal, never has been. It's always been one of the things I've criticised him for. He needs too many chances to score goals, if we're being honest. You know, it's not to say his return is bad, but the ratio with which he, you know, when you look at the number of chances he gets compared to the conversion is not, not great. It's not world-class. It's not right at the top, top level. I just think the forwards that we've got right now are just not complementing what it is that Mikel Arteta wants from them. I don't think 
Lacazette was able to hold up the ball yesterday against a top quality opponent in Fabinho, who'd clearly done a job on him. I don't think that Aubameyang makes the right runs all the time. I don't think that Aubameyang um, is effective enough when he gets the ball at his feet. I don't see him as someone with the skill and guile to beat a man or pick out an unbelievable pass. I feel like putting through on through. I feel like if you put him through on goal and, and, and say to him, you know, go and do your thing, most of the time he'll do the job. Bear with me. I've just lost uh, connection there on the uh, on the good quality microphone. I'll just uh, reconnect that for you. Apologies. Don't know what's happened there. Really, really frustrating. Hold on a minute. We're on the default microphone, which is awful because uh, they don't make them uh, very well. Anyway, um, I'll just... Uh, while I try and rectify that. There you go. Should be back to the uh, normal quality. Apologies. I, I don't know why that happens. I think it's the adapter. I've said it before. I should really get another one. But yeah, anyway. Um, yeah, look, I think we just don't have the skill set in our centre forwards that is required to play this way. And, and what you're seeing is a team that are progressing with a philosophy, a team that are starting to understand defensively and from the the, the goalkeeper right to the midfield what it is that Mikel wants but we're not getting what we need out of the forwards and that's the part of the team that's relatively been untouched right um Aubameyang and Lacazette were both there long before Mikel Arteta came along so you know is this part of the the transition is this something that we have to deal with understand that those guys are not necessarily completely fit for purpose but until we get the opportunity to replace them we're going to see this from time to time we're going to see times where you know it, it's it's not working and we're going to have to accept that is it part of the process as people like to say I don't know um you know we'll see and, and fingers crossed Arsenal do go out and get uh, more fit for purpose centre forward in in the summer because I don't think it's going to happen um you know in in January I think January for me the, the priority's got to be the midfield we've got to sort the midfield area out um I think that's got to be the number one, uh, you know, centre forward is important, but I still think the midfield comes first. So I, I think we're going to have to accept that Aubameyang and Lacazette are not the long-term solutions to our problems up front, but they're there at the minute. They're better than a lot of other options that are out there. And if you want to go big and bring in someone who you think is going to lead the line for years to come, then you're going to need to wait till the summer and you're going to need to spend big. And I don't know that Arsenal can do that. Uh, in January. So we'll have to wait and see. But I, I do think what you're seeing is the beginnings of the new team, the development at the back and in, in the midfield, but you're not really seeing it um, up front. And that is the area that Mikel Arteta's, you know, touched the least, I guess, in terms of transfers. I think midfield, look, I, I, and, and, you know, we talked about maybe the idea of of perhaps playing an extra midfielder and how that might have helped us. But if we're just... Um, you know, if we're going to be honest, um, I just think that yesterday, although I think that playing a slightly different way might have helped, Partey and Lokonga just weren't on the same level as those Liverpool midfielders. And this is the difficulty, right? You, you know, you need to be able to differentiate between what is a tactical fault, what is something that the manager has got horribly wrong, what is uh, a failure to implement instruction and what is simply a golfing class. And there is a big golfing class between uh, Fabinho and Laconga, between Thiago and Partey in certain aspects. And I think a fully fit and firing and at the top of his game, Thomas Partey, makes a massive difference to Arsenal yesterday. But he wasn't fully fit, clearly. He wasn't at the top of his game, clearly. And I can accept that from time to time, because I think that, you know, all top players have off days. But my worry with Thomas Partey is this fitness issue. How many times is Thomas Partey going to pick up a muscular injury, then come back not fully fit, not at all ready and turn in a stinker? I think he did it a few times last season. And I think we saw it again yesterday. And I'm, you know, I don't know how much of that is down to Thomas Partey and how much of that as in the decision to play him from the start, I guess, is, is down to the manager. Um, so, yeah, you know, we, we've got to be mindful of that. It's um, it's a worry. It's a concern. And this is why I keep saying that we need to address that midfield area because, you know, 
if he's going to keep breaking down, then we've got a big, big problem. And um, and for me, it's one that we can't afford to overlook when the January window opens. I know January is not the ideal window to be doing big business, but you've got to do it. You've got to do something that protects us from the event of Thomas Partey picking up another injury and protects us against him leaving for the African Cup of Nations. Not just him, but Mohamed Elneny leaving for the African Cup of Nations. I know there's talk about Elneny potentially leaving in January. Does that mean we've got a midfield target in mind? Because to allow Mohamed Elneny, African Cup of Nations or not, to leave the club when we're so thin in that area still feels like madness to me. I don't particularly rate the player. I don't think that he's someone that represents the future or that is, you know, a special outstanding talent. But he's a body that we have in that position. And the idea of allowing him to go in January without bringing someone else in just doesn't sit right with me. So I hope I'm hopeful that the club at least have their eyes on doing some kind of um, some kind of deal in that area of the park. Right, we're going to take some of your questions for the last sort of 10, 15 minutes of the show. So start dropping them in the chat box. Pop a little cue at the beginning. It helps me just to pick them out. I can see there's a few in there already, and I'll come to some of those in just a moment. But quick reminder, if you haven't done so already, make sure you hit the like button on the video. If you're watching us via YouTube, it really, really helps. There's over... 150 of you watching us right now across YouTube, Twitch and Facebook, but we've only got 37 likes on the board. Please do help us get that up as high as possible because it really, really helps. Also, if you are watching um, and you're not subscribed to the Chronicles of Aguna YouTube channel, what on earth are you doing? Stop freeloading and subscribe to the channel if you'd like to go one further and support us in the uh, creation of our content, then you can become a member. But at the very least, at least subscribe, guys. Come on. doesn't cost a penny. Get involved. Um, right. Let's take some of your questions then from the live chat box. Uh, big hello to Wandering Minstrel. He says, uh, Harry, creative midfield or defensive midfield in January? I think defensive for me. You know, I don't think we're going to get both. I think it's unrealistic to think that we could bring in two midfielders. But I think in creative midfield, we've got Odegaard, we've got Smith Rowe who can play there. Bukayo Saka's played in the 10 before. Um, I wouldn't be dead against giving Nicolas Pepe an opportunity in that position. I know that uh, Mikel Arteta likes playing Lacazette in that hole as well. So that doesn't feel like a priority to me. I would go with the defensive midfield just because I'm worried about Partey. I'm worried about Maitland-Niles if he's asked to play a long stretch of games. I'm worried about how long it's going to take Granit Xhaka to get back to match fitness again. And all of those things combined lead me to say that the defensive midfield is the bigger priority. Uh, Dalisu says, do you think Lekonga being subbed would dent his confidence? Uh, it's a fine line to to manage, isn't it? As a manager, you know, you don't want to kill players by taking them off early, but when they're not doing the business, then it's a problem and you need to prioritise the team over that player's development. I think... It felt to me like that substitution was coming before we conceded the second goal in the sense of it happened so quickly that it must have been planned already. Um, look, I, I think Lekonga was a bit of a weak link yesterday in the middle of the park. That's not to pick on him. I thought Thomas Partey was equally as underwhelming. And Partey, if anyone, has less of an excuse. Maybe he wasn't fit, but... He's the senior guy. He's the one who should be setting an example for Albert Sambi Lekonga, who didn't play well yesterday. But I just want to reiterate the point. wasn't at all helped by Thomas Partey's performance alongside him. Um, let's see uh, what else we've got. Billy Kilgallen says, overall, I feel we're in the best position so far post Wenger. We look like we have a plan. Add two or three top quality players in the number six and number nine or 10 positions, and then we'll look good. Can't wait for the summer. Yeah, I agree that we're probably in the best position so far post Wenger in terms of not just where we're at right now, because people will say that Unai Emery's Arsenal were obviously higher up in the league and finished the season just outside the top four. But in terms of the wider perspective, so forget just the results in terms of where the club's going with the transfer policy, the acquisition of lots of young, hungry, young talents. I think that's what you mean in terms of the, the best position. 
I think, look, it's, and, and I kept reiterating this point yesterday, and I've had loads of messages and tweets and YouTube comments for, on yesterday's show telling me that I should stop telling people how to support the club. I'm not telling people how to support the club. I'm not telling people to not be worried, to not be concerned, to not have an opinion on certain issues and what they watch every single week. What I am telling people is to do it with respect to talk about your club that you claim to love with respect. And that's all that I think we need to be mindful of as football fans. I think we're in a, a day and age where social media is is everything, unfortunately. Um, and people feel that they can cross lines that they would never cross face-to-face because of that anonymity that social media gives us. And I don't like that. You know, I was talking to someone earlier on today, one of you guys uh, DM me on Twitter, and we were saying like, when you lost the game in years gone by, you you might go to the pub after for a couple of drinks and vent your frustrations, but then you'd go home and you'd calm down. Now we have more access to football than ever. And you scroll through Twitter after a game and something that wasn't even in your mind in terms of an opinion can be seeded into your mind because you've scrolled through Twitter and four or five people have, have raised this particular point. And I think it does influence the way we think and it does influence the way we judge our team and the way we assess our team. And that for me is dangerous, dangerous in the sense of it's good to have lots of knowledge and it's good for thought provoke. I, I like the idea of provoking thoughts in people's minds, but what I don't like is the way people will hang on, on something that they've read from someone else and use that as their the whole basis for their opinion. I think you need to take bits from everywhere and be measured and 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 share what you feel. And I do feel like some of the people that are always outraged by Arsenal are doing it because they think that's the way they should be viewed. That's the that's the right way to come across. That's how you prove to people that you're a proper Arsenal fan is by making out that you're outraged at every moment of difficulty. And I'm, look, I'm upset that we lost to Liverpool and I'm frustrated that we lost to Liverpool and I'm frustrated that it was 4-0. I wasn't disgusted by Arsenal's performance yesterday. In years gone by, I've been disgusted, but I wasn't yesterday because I understand where we are. I understand the journey that we need to go on and it might be frustrating and it might take us longer than most of us want it to take. But you know, we've got to be realistic and, and that's how I see it. Uh, GB says, how many points do you expect us to get from our next six fixtures? Newcastle, United away, Everton away, Southampton, West Ham and Leeds away. I, I think we must beat Newcastle. You beat Newcastle next week and you can draw a line in the sand after that performance at Anfield and you move on. I'd have said we're probably going to get three points from Newcastle and Liverpool anyway. So if we get that, great. Man United, I'd take a draw. Um, but again, if you lose at Man United, is that uh, the end of the world? No, I think at Everton, if we do lose at United, we need to win at Everton. Um, Southampton, we should win. West Ham, I don't see why we can't beat West Ham United at home. Leeds away, looking at Leeds' form, if you've got aspirations of being in the top four, you have to win that as well. But this is all, I keep saying this, don't I, that you know, sometimes you will drop points where you don't expect to, and then you'll go and pick up points where you also don't expect to. And then over the course of the season, it can equal and balance itself out. So I don't want to say that we need to get, you know, a point from Man United away, or or I don't want to say that we need to get four points from United and Everton because, and then if we lose to United, say that it's, you know, bad example. I don't want to say that we should be getting a specific points tally from specific games. I want to say that over the next three games, I don't think you can look much further than that. Newcastle, United and Everton away. I want at least six points from that. If we get six points from that, I'll be quite happy. I don't care how the points come. Obviously, winning at Man United gives you a confidence boost. Um, and equally winning away at Everton gives you more of a boost than winning at home to Newcastle. But it doesn't really matter how the points come about. A win gives you three points. It doesn't matter whether you won 1-0, 5-0, 6-0, 9-0, 10-0. It's three points. So I think for me, if we took six points from Newcastle, United away and Everton away, I'd be delighted with that. Um, and, And that's how I think you need to look at it. Then you reassess the situation. You look at the circumstances, you look at who's fit, you look at current form, and then you can make that call again for the next group of matches. That's how I do it anyway. Um, 
But yeah, uh, Saeed Abdullah, uh, very, very uh, kind donation from you, mate. Thank you so, so much. Always supporting the channel. And I really, really do appreciate it, mate. So thank you, uh, as per usual, uh, for your very kind donation. And he's got uh, a question in the chat, which I'll just pick out now. Uh, sorry, Saeed, I'm just trying to find it again. Here we go. Why is our fan base so quick to say Tavares is better than Tierney? He's not even close. Look, I mean, I can only speak for myself, mate, but I didn't say that Tavares was better. I don't think that Tavares is better. I think he's got certain attributes that Kieran Tierney doesn't, but equally Kieran Tierney has attributes that he doesn't. I think they're not, you know, although they're both left backs, I think they're different left backs. I think one of them re relies on his raw physicality and causes chaos sometimes in the attacking third because of his unpredictability, whereas the other is a, a very safe player in terms of, the way he defends, but also in terms of the way he attacks. It's very, and I don't want to use the term predictable because it sounds like I'm knocking him, but Kieran Tierney, you know what you're going to get from him when he goes forward. Nuno Tavares, you don't. You know, Tierney is always going to go on the outside. He is always going to try and get as close to the byline as possible before putting a cross into the box. Whereas Tavares might dribble inside. He might take someone on. He might cut in field and have a shot on his weaker right foot. You just don't know what you're going to get with him. I think the point here was that was not that Kieran Tierney isn't good all of a sudden and that Nuno Tavares is better than him. I think the point here was that he hadn't put a foot wrong up until this point and therefore to drop him after some really, really impressive performances would have been harsh. That's certainly the way I looked at it anyway. Uh, let's take on a couple more. Um, AD says, were you respectful to Emery when you rated his time at Arsenal 5 out of 10? when he was third in the league. Well, I get this all the time because I was, I raised concerns about Unai Emery a lot earlier than most. And I got a lot of heat for it. I remember going on a, going on an AFTV show and getting absolutely battered, not just in the comments, but by email on Twitter uh, for my, for what I said about Unai Emery. And actually, I'm not going to entertain people asking me about a lack of respect for Unai Emery. I never once said that he was a bad guy. I never said that I didn't like him. I said that he wasn't the right man to take Arsenal forward. And whatever way you try and dress it up, he wasn't because he got sacked. He got sacked before Christmas in his second season. Therefore, he wasn't the right man to take Arsenal forward. Therefore, I was proved right. That when I said that Unai Emery was not the right man. And when you look at the shit show that we were left with after Unai Emery departed, the number of players that were brought in during that period that we've since had to move on, that we still can't get rid of. You know, we had to terminate Socrates' contract. Lucas Torreira's out on loan. Matteo Guendouzi's out on loan. The, the, the amount of players that we were left over with that just weren't fit for purpose. And granted, you know, Unai Emery didn't sign all of those. It wasn't always in his hands. I get that. But the point I'm trying to make is that the club were going in the wrong direction. It was clear that we were because Emery was sacked so early in his tenure. Didn't even get to Christmas in his second season. So I'm sick of people asking me whether I was respectful to Unai Emery. Ultimately, I raised concerns about Unai Emery long before many people did. And I'm going to I'm going to say that because I got it right. And if I get it wrong, I'll hold my hands up. If this project under Mikel Arteta never gets better, never progresses, never works out, I'll have to hold my hands up because my opinion and feeling and view has always been that we need to give this time. I never had that feeling with Unai Emery. And you can say what you like about me and you can say I defend Mikel Arteta and you can say I was disrespectful to Unai Emery. But at the end of the day, I was right. And the people that were in love with Unai Emery and were you know, gushing over what we saw from him in the first season were ultimately wrong. The facts don't lie. And Unai Emery didn't even make it till Christmas in his second season. Um, let's see what else we've got. Uh, uh, big hello to Mohammed as well, who's joining us uh, from Palestine. Hope you're well, my friend. Uh, let's see what else we have here. Um Let's take this one from Mark B, who says, uh, what worried me yesterday was how we crumbled after conceding players went back to that non-thinking style of play instead of keeping it tight and waiting for a chance. What do you think? I think you're absolutely spot on. I think 
that comes or stems from two things. The first being inexperience in a lot of, um, in a lot of cases, but the second, um, was this inferiority complex that we have when we go to places like Anfield. And unfortunately, we're never going to shake that until we start picking up results against these teams. But for me, as I said yesterday on the post-match reaction show, Mark, that, you know, it was big and it was important. And I think I tweeted when it was 2-0 down. I think I said, don't underestimate the value of damage limitation here. And I thought that was, that was you know, so true. And the damage limitation thing, it's something that we we clearly haven't nailed down yet because we were all over the place. We were putting poor passes into poor areas. We were uh, gifting Liverpool possession. We were allowing them to win the ball up high, um, you know, and it was, we were stuck between a rock and a hard place because we were playing the ball long. And unfortunately our forwards weren't able to hold the ball up. They weren't able to, um, you know, make it stick partly down to the service they were receiving, but partly down to them too. And it was just wave after wave after wave after wave of Liverpool attack. And, and we couldn't cope with it. You know, but for Aaron Ramsdale, it might have been six or seven. And that's the reality of it. But you're right. It was a crumbling. It was a, I think Mikel Arteta called it a crash after, you know, after or when we conceded that second goal after Nuno Tavares's mistake. And I think that was spot on. And I think that we need to learn and we need to be better at, dealing with those moments and making sure that they don't lead to total destruction. And and that's a big development area for this Arsenal side. And um, yeah, um, yeah, I, I, I think that's absolutely uh, true. You know, we did, we did crumble. I think you've described it perfectly. Akene says, well, one day you stop the people on YouTube from triggering you. Um, no, look, I, it's not. I, I want to respond to the comment that the whole point is, you know, of doing these shows live when we can. Um, and I know the people that, uh, you know, listen via audio might not necessarily understand this when they only listen via the audio platform, which is obviously fine. But I think one of the things I love about doing this show, and one of the reasons I'm able to do a lot of podcasts by myself, because let's be honest, go out there and, and listen to to other shows, not just about Arsenal, but about football. And you'll very rarely find kind of one-man podcasts. You'll find one-man YouTube channels, but one-man podcasts are, are a bit of a rarity. But the reason I'm able to do it is because I get so much wonderful interaction from you guys in the chat. Whether you agree with me, whether you disagree with me, I'm happy to answer the questions. And sometimes I get a bit passionate about them. Um, but that's just because I'm talking about the Arsenal and, and that's how I feel. But yeah, it's not, uh, you know, that was a good question um, and, and one that I quite enjoyed answering. So as long as it's respectful in the sense of not abusing, you know, not calling me a name or whatever, um, then then I'm happy to answer anything. And I think I've shown that I'm always happy to take on uh, any question. Uh, Omar says, is Aubameyang's time up? time up? I see an irreversible decline with just a few moments of brilliance. Um, yeah, um, look, he's not going to be the player he was. Um, you know, most players decline around his age. 32 years old seems to feel like a bit of a turning point for players. You lose that half a yard of pace. I think he's playing in a worse Arsenal side uh, in terms of creativity than he was before. Um, I don't think we're a worse Arsenal side overall, but I think if you think, you know, for example... So let's take it back to Unai Emery's time. Alex Iwobi and, and Henrik Mkhitaryan, although they used to get pelters, were creating a lot of opportunities. Um, and, and the stats, and I've looked this up, prove that. So there were there were more creative forces, I think, in in previous Arsenal sides. And I think that's the, the lack of those now has contributed to Pierre Emerick Aubameyang's decline. I think he's not not necessarily at the races. Uh, maybe he's not as sharp. Maybe he's not. As you know, I, I don't want to say he's not as motivated because I think he's looked quite motivated recently. But yeah, they, you know, players go through a decline, and I think we're seeing that with him. But again, as I said a little bit earlier on, I feel like that would have been seen. You know, the, the centre forward position with Ober there, with Lacquer there, would have been seen by the club when they were deciding which areas needed to be prioritised as something that could wait, as something that could be delayed. And now what you're seeing is the consequence of us not having finished yet in terms of our recruitment and the players that we want to bring in and that disconnect between the new thing and the new setup and the new way of playing. And then the fact that the old guard up front 
are just not, um, you know, are just not fit for purpose. Doesn't mean they're bad players. They're just not fit for purpose at this moment in time. Um, Mohammed says, is there a link, my friend? No, Mohammed. I said I was going to do a phone-in show this week, and we will, my friend, but this is not a phone-in show. When they are, I will title them phone-in show so that you guys know. And I'll always give you notice on Twitter as well uh, when we're doing a fan's phone-in, but this is uh, this is not a fan's phone-in. Um, Arsenal Granny says, loved what Ramsdale said. It's a sprint, not a marathon. Absolutely. And as I keep saying, our season will not be defined by trips to Anfield, trips to the Etihad, trips to Stamford Bridge. We need to do better against the rest. And when you consider that Arsenal got absolutely piped this weekend, battered, uh, pulled apart, annihilated by Liverpool, when you consider that, but you also take into consideration that West Ham dropped points, uh, that Tottenham, okay, Tottenham won, but they're still behind us, that Manchester United dropped points, that Brighton dropped points, that Leicester City, who people think will come good and eventually be, um, you know, challenging for the European places. When you take all of that into consideration and think that we're still fifth, we've been to Anfield, we've played City away. So we've been to Anfield and we've been to City and we've played Chelsea at home. So we've played three of the sides that I don't give us any hope against uh, already. We've got them out of the way. When you take all of that into consideration, I think to be fifth in the Premier League, just three points off of the top four, you know, we have to be not happy, but content with that. And it's not a position that warrants calling for the manager's head, in my view. It's not a position that warrants a huge overreaction. I think if we struggle against Newcastle and then we go and get beat at Manchester United and then we go and get beat again at Everton, then you can look at it with a little bit more concern. But right now, keep with the team, stay on board. You know, people have been very, very positive over the last sort of eight, nine weeks of Premier League action. It's been really refreshing. It's been really enjoyable. It's it's the most I've enjoyed supporting Arsenal in a, in a while. Get behind the team. It's important that we bounce back. And if we do bounce back, then that game and that annihilation at Anfield will be very easily forgotten because let's be honest, we've become accustomed to them in recent seasons. But stick with the team, keep the faith a little bit longer. If in a few weeks' time we're, we're talking about poor performances and poor results against sides that we are competing with and against sides that I do regard as as kind of a similar level to us, then I will raise those concerns. And I'll, like everyone else, will be upset, will be worried, will be frustrated. But at this moment in time, um, you know, there's no need to press the panic button. Look at that league position. If I had told you, most of you, the sensible ones, <laughs> before the season, that at this point, 12 games into the campaign, which is what, quarter of the way through the season? Is that right? Is my maths? Yeah. 24 games is half. Yeah. If I told you that a quarter of the way into the season would be within touching distance of the top four, despite having already been to Liverpool, having been to City, having played Chelsea at home and played one of the North London derbies, I think most people would have been quite content with that. And therefore, what's changed? Nothing. Nothing. What what has happened that warrants you abandoning that point of view and that sensible opinion? Not enough. And that's the bottom line. Right, we're going to leave it there. Thank you all so much. Hope you guys enjoyed the tactical analysis at the start of the show and the subsequent discussion. Uh, big thank you for all your fantastic interaction uh, in the chat box. It's always very, very welcome. And as I said earlier on, it allows me to be able to do podcasts uh, solo because you guys are so brilliant. So thank you uh, for all your support. Please do, if you haven't done so already, hit that like button. It really, really does help. We've got over 150 of you watching right now on YouTube alone, but we've only got 62 likes on the board. Guys, let's get that as close to the 100 mark as we possibly can. It really, really, and I know, I listen, I hate asking for them. I hate talking about it. I hate bringing them up, but I wouldn't if it didn't massively help the channel and massively help in getting those videos out to as many people as possible. Uh, love to you all. And uh, I'll catch you all very, very soon with a brand new show, my weekend review show. We'll be we'll be talking uh, about some of the uh, the results and the big stories, including the sacking of Oli Gunnar Solskjaer um, following the weekend's action. So we'll be bringing you that one first thing in the morning. Hopefully, get an episode of the Social Club in this week as well with the boys. Uh, yeah, lots lots to come. Newcastle preview coming up a bit later on in the week with uh, the Gallagher shots. 
um, another one of the 90 Min podcasts and, and plenty of great stuff to come. I'll catch you all very soon. Until next time, take care of yourselves and stay safe. All the best. You're listening to the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast. I'm Martin Tyler, and you're listening to Harry Simeon.